Welcome and happy Friday. This is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. Uh, I am here in the Condé Nast podcast studios with Catherine Legrave and Mark Elwood, who are podcast regulars, also writers and editors for Traveler. And we have on the Skype Tyler Moss, who is a writer for us. Actually, he's not coming via Skype. We're going to throw a little shade at Skype. Skype not working. <laughs> Thanks to Microsoft's invisible, we're going to upgrade your shit in the background policy and then have it not work when you try to actually use it. So we're using FaceTime. Hope that works out. That's um, the small screen today. Yes, we got the small vertical screen, which is kind of an aggressive move on Apple's part, but I dig it. Our topic this week is going to be over tourism. And Catherine, I figured a good place to start is we've had this uh, gallery, a story on the site, mm -hmm. in the form of a gallery. We first published it two years ago in 2015. And I don't know the precise number, but I want to say there were maybe five or six places there. Something south of 10 anyway. And yeah. now we've republished it a couple of times. And now it's up to 15 places that are telling tourists. I think the title of the piece is 15 Places Telling Tourists to Stay Home. Yeah, actually, this came funny story. Um, this actually, Do you have a whale joke? No, or no whale joke. I can't joke. talk that. So it's not actually a funny story. But um, this came out of a story I pitched when I was a freelancer and actually didn't work at Traveler. And it came on the heels of this announcement that Barcelona's mayor, the new mayor at the time, um, when she was talking about limiting, like adding an entry cap on the city. And so I said, you know, here are the other places that are actually telling tourists to stay home. Because at the time, I feel like now every other day we see a story about like, this city's going to crack down in this way and this destination is saying no more tourists. Um, but at the time it wasn't such a hot topic. Um, so anyway, like you said, there were like five places and now every year we've just been adding to it not even every year every few months yeah. right how would you define over tourism because i think it's interesting is it just more people than you expect to be there what do you think classifies something as an over tourism problem not peak season mm, good question well how did you pick them for the yeah. piece itself well i mean it was different for each place um so each caption um discusses different ways like Barcelona and Venice for example their big complaint is that it's too expensive for the residents to live in the city because of all these hotels and all these Airbnbs whereas a place like Iceland for example says Iceland and Norway are saying we have all these natural sites but we don't think people are enjoying it as much because we think there are just too many visitors and we just our infrastructure can't handle it so it's kind of a different thing one place is saying we have the infrastructure and we don't want to go farther along and the other people are saying we don't have the infrastructure and we don't really want to build it yet because we're fine with things how they are well, does that make sense it does but i just think there is something because there's definitely a distinction between old-fashioned peak season which was i'll go yeah. to a destination and know that it'll be busy there'll be lines i know it'll be full but it's convenient for me vacation wise and the weather will be good and this phenomenon whereby you're in a destination and you think, oh, this is too much. I'm not getting the experience. All I'm seeing is tourists. And I don't know where the line is. I mean, Tyler, do you have any thoughts? You know, I feel like the term over tourism has an inherently, at least in my experience, seems to have kind of an inherently negative connotation. You know, a surplus of tourism to the point where whatever the destination is can't handle it in an infrastructure way. You know, there's it's becoming um, burdensome, whether, you know, it's on... Um, restaurants, hotels, local businesses, whatever, to the point where the city kind of can't sustain their not only kind of local culture and all that, but it's actually having a negative effect. And that's kind of been the interpretation I've had in places where you, you have regulations being imposed to one degree or another, you know, that they're suffering from such an influx of people that it's having negative consequences. Yeah, so I, I mean, we can take it back to the original title of the piece, which is the places themselves. We're telling people we have a problem. We, we actually, in certain circumstances, we don't want you to come. Mm -hmm. They don't say it in that many words, but in the Barcelona case, if I remember correctly, it was kind of like that. It was about as, as what did they actually say? Catherine? I mean, it's like they're implementing a new tourist tax and they're restricting the number of Airbnbs and they're not letting any new hotels be built in the city center. I mean, we just saw this with Venice, right? That's saying we're not going to let any large cruise ships come because they're in danger. Venice is sort of a specific example where UNESCO said to them, it's damaging to the city that you're having so many people visit and your world heritage status 
is in question. We know Venice has been talking about this and for also, a while. Let's remember the Venetians build <laughs> most of the cruise ships a little further up the coast that they then bitch about <laughs> making money off them in the ports. So the Venetians are being very disingenuous, insincere, and kind of Venetian about it. Ooh. So I think. <laughs> New podcast. Yeah. I mean, Venice is famously the least friendly. I, I spent a lot of my childhood in Italy. Venice is the place that isn't very welcoming to tourists because they know people will come back and Venice is a very closed conservative place. They don't like outsiders. So it's also a collision with the Venetian mindset but they're not turning the business away from the shipyard. So I always think with this, Venice needs to have a little big asterisk next to it going, you weren't you weren't unhappy to build the ships, you just hate the fact that then they come back to you. And that I find. But like Coter Montenegro has the same thing, UNESCO Heritage Site, and they said to them as well, you have too many people visiting. Yeah, that, but that's fair. But my point is, Venice is a very particular situation. I All right, you. let's you know, back I think up. It's, oh, sorry. sorry. Go ahead, Tyler. I was going to say, I think it's funny that you say that because I just was in Italy over Thanksgiving and the week after um, and went to Venice and other places, and I found it very welcoming. And But, I mean, I think there was a couple factors there that were key, right? I think part of it was being there in off-season when there weren't such a ridiculous influx of tourists. And so, you know, places are probably wanting a little bit more traffic at that point, and no place seems completely overrun, for one. I also think that, and I, you know, this is kind of something I've come across in my writing as well, when you are in a destination and you make a point to seek out more actual authentic local experiences, whether it's, you know... They'll still be mean to you. They're still mean. <laughs> They're still super mean. I the things Venetians have said in front of me. My Italian is fluent, but I don't, I'm not Italian. Therefore, Italians speak Italian in front of me as if I'm a Martian. And the stuff that the Venetians have said in front of me that is so rude, no other city in Italy has that ever happened. And I <laughs> To be fair, exactly, maybe I just didn't understand it. Yeah. I behave exactly the same way in every city. And I listen to the Venetians go, mm, don't think we should give him the upgrade. He doesn't look like he's worth it. And I'm standing right in front of them. <laughs> Them at the hotel. What do you do? Do you say something? No, I wait. I had this to happen. And I always act dumb in Italy because you learn a lot more that way. And then you wait and you let these women, these women are very, very rude in front of me, discussing me in depth. And then you wait and you say, Grazie signoretta, che sogno. Oh, molto gentile. Una camera sul canale grande, che sogno. Per me, fosse, oh, molto gentile. And you watch the color drain from their face. And I got a suite. Nice. So it was really nice. <laughs> nice. Win-win. Okay. Let's... So the key there is learn Italian, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, sorry. Yes, that's what I do. That's always the key. So some of these, I... some of these places are, you know, places that everybody wants to go to, which I guess is part of the problem. But, mm-hmm. but I think people don't know that some of these places are having problems to the extent that they're actually telling people to think twice or telling people that they're going to tax them extra, things like that. I don't, I don't think but a don't, lot of people know that. Don't you that. think, you see, I, I, what I would, I'm always concerned by this over-tourism problem. I think it's a bit like people who complain that no one takes them seriously because they're too beautiful or too handsome. That, like, it's a burden to be so beautiful because no one cares about my intellectual theory. There is a somewhat complicated relationship between you can only be over-touristed if you're super appealing as a tourist destination. And it's almost a bit of a humble brag. There is something complicated to me about when destinations declare themselves over-touristed. A little bit of it is, we are so amazing that we are deluged with... Am I the only one who is... Maybe I'm just coming at this so... No, cynical. I think there's def- there's definitely phases, I think, of, you know, different, you know... Any kind of destination goes through changes in which it's kind of the new burgeoning place where, you know, everyone's excited to go there. People are going there and staying in more, you know, local bed and breakfast or something like that. And it's more adventure. You're kind of these are the people on the first frontier. Then you kind of start to get the people, well, okay, this has been, you know, gentrified or whatever. And it's more, you know, I feel more comfortable going here. Now they, a lot of people are speaking more English or whatever. And I feel more comfortable, you know, they're giving me menus in English, that kind of thing. And then you get to the point where, you know, you're getting such a high volume of people that it's starting to take a toll on maybe some of these ruins or different things and starting to push out local businesses and you're getting chain restaurants or chain, you know, giant resorts, that kind of thing. So I think, I mean, it's certainly money-wise, at least at first, it's a positive thing. But I think over time, when you kind of start pushing out those local businesses and it kind of does become what we, you know, call touristy, just, you know, you don't get that authentic experience. And you're making then. a very interesting point. I wonder if what we call over-touristed now, we would have called touristy 20 years ago. Is it the over-trafficked? Is it the old touristy is the new over-touristed? Are we just giving it a fancy name? Hmm. 
Okay, let's look at a couple of case studies of these. So, and Mark, you and I have talked about this before, but <laughs> I'll just to this because, I, because, because I think there are some common threads through these. So we've talked about Barcelona, which I think is a medium-sized city, right? Like it's not as big as New York, but it's pretty sizable. Mm-hmm. Like it's got, uh, it covers a lot of territory. It's not dense except in the very sort of center versus Santorini, right? And also we could throw Venice in there. And I think one of the things that you've got that's a commonality in all of those places that have was at, at or close to the tipping point was when the giant cruise ships start showing up. And it seems to me, like I would argue, having been in all three of those places and having been there when the cruise ships are kind of coming in, that one of the things that, you know, Barcelona, I'm sure, is having problems and I can see how the prices would be going up and things like that. That seems you know perfectly understandable. On the other hand, Barcelona is a, as a city, as a spread out kind of environment, it can handle that a little bit better than Santorini, for example, where there just isn't anywhere to go, right? You're on an island, it has limited square footage, and when you start shipping in 10, 15,000 people a day on those ships... You know the infrastructure, which is weak to begin with, or small to begin but with. But I would hold, I would hold a lot of the local municipalities very culpable when the cruise ship companies come to you with feasibility studies and economic impact studies. They are very seductive, and they will say it's it's a little like you know a contestant on The Bachelor saying you know, I'll take you up to the fantasy suite. They're very leading. They're promising you something. And they'll show all the ways in which cruise passengers disgorging en masse will have an uptick for the local economy. But almost always, those numbers never seem to pan out. But then it's too late. It's almost Pandora's box. It's Pandora's cruising box. Almost no one can then say, we will no longer include Santorini in our itineraries. But what we promised it would do for the local economy, maybe it's it's helping the harbour master buy a second home, but it's not really driving the local. So, you know, so I think there's something very. I I I love cruising. I'm one of the few people here who does. I love cruising, but I don't think the lines are always super upfront in their feasibility. They just want access to the places, and who can blame them? But yeah. don't you think? I mean, it's like they add it to a destination once it becomes more popular. Like in the beginning, they're not saying we're going to have 18,000 cruise ship passengers. They're saying we'll add you to all of our itineraries instead of X. Mm-hmm. And look, we've done feasibility studies. It will bring 40 bucks per head every day. But of course, what ends up happening, sometimes people pack a lunch from breakfast and just walk around town eating a sandwich and don't spend a penny. Mm-hmm. And they're also not spending the night at you know places. They don't have time to venture really outside of the city to really go anywhere beyond that main tourist core. Yeah, and you can't make too many sort of blanket generalizations, but at least some of portion of that daily intake is people who are not necessarily going to the five-star restaurants or even the you know four-star restaurants that have been opened on the promise of all of the activity that's going to be generated. And who can, I mean, I don't hold the passengers culpable in any way. If I have a dream trip planned around the world and I only think I'll ever go to Venice once, no, I'm not going to go to the far-flung corners of Venice because it's more <laughs> interesting. I want to go to St. Mark's and see it because I'm probably never going to get the chance again. So it's not really the pass up to the passenger's recognizance. Mm. It's just the sense that there's a very uneasy relationship between the local operations of the municipalities and the cruise lines and the financial relationship that is supposed to exist and what really does. And I'm not talking about bribery. I'm just saying the economic benefits of cruises. I've never seen the economic impacts pan out the way they were predicted to. And I'd be curious if anyone listening can correct me. I'd love to know. I'd love to hear uh, an example of where it has, because every time I've looked into it, I've never seen it. Uh, live up to it. So what do you think, this is another place on the list, what do you think about a case like Iceland, where it was almost like they were too successful, like they had this very innovative, Mm. very, very sort of long-standing policy of trying to generate tourism, and it's like you know, particularly in the last decade they sort of over-succeeded you know, what, (laughs) what, how do you feel about a place like that? I did a piece, uh, when was it Catherine? Probably November on Iceland and talked to a bunch of kind of locals Mm -hmm. about how, you know, the effect that this has had and it seems like especially in you know in the city in Reykjavik it's been a source of complaint over now whereas you're right I mean they had this huge economic crash in 2008 they had this volcano erupt there was all they needed kind of this rebound uh, marketing strategy and that's where kind of the inspired by Iceland these viral videos and everything came from they had the Iceland stopover program and um, they were tremendously successful like you said almost too successful in that regard but 
when I was talking to the different people who, you know, live in Iceland and, and our locals there, no one was saying that they didn't want to see tourists at all anymore. It was more the way people um, experienced Iceland they wish was different. That like, everyone like didn't what? just come and, and oh what? yeah, that everyone didn't just come and, you know, spend all the time in kind of the prime, um, you know, downtown strip of Reykjavik, that people go and try to have dinners with families in different parts of Iceland or um, were more... Uh, intelligent about how they went about, you know, everyone wants to go see whether it's the Northern Lights or go hiking or do these different things. But uh, apparently they have a pretty big problem with people not really understanding just how intense some of these roads in winter can be and getting stuck out there. And these volunteer firefighters have to be keep getting called out of work to come and rescue, you know, ignorant tourists from ice slide or something like that. And so, so it was more about the approach, I guess, than it was, you know, wanting to cut things off entirely, at least in my experience. So should, should people, people be better? You see, I think this is also an interesting point about over-tourism. Should people be better briefed before they go? Is this a sense that destinations have to be as aware of not just getting people to come, but managing expectations when they do and trying to do not etiquette lessons exactly, but saying if you're going to go driving in rural Iceland, here are what the five things locals always do. You know, pack a bottle of water, make sure your phone works, whatever it is. So maybe it's a sense of people not prepping for the destination. That sounds like it could be, I think, quite possible. Yeah, yeah. and that would alleviate some of the... Yeah. Mm-hmm. But how much of that do you put on, I mean, back to your point earlier about the tourists themselves or the travelers themselves, how much do you put on the traveler versus the destination? Because, like, I hear you say that and I think, like, well, what are the means by which, like, Iceland has to do that with people. I'm not interfacing. When I go to a place, I'm really not interfacing with any official channel from that But place. I would argue somewhere like Iceland, which we have many podcasts about Iceland. Anyone who hasn't listened to them, we've talked about it in lots of different ways. Um, and it is a very interesting case study. Iceland, because of the economic implosion, was a p- corralled together and is a very organized Scandinavian-esque, not Scandinavian, but Scandinavian-style country where everyone does collectively good and I think you could easily say in in Iceland when you check in through immigration you get given a do's and don'ts of Iceland little chit which says please be careful in the countryside now not everyone will read it but some people will and that is one way that everyone has to pass through immigration just hand them an extra thing of saying here's how to really enjoy Iceland slash how not to be a bad tourist. I think that is a win-win on both sides. Well, and I think Iceland has been so successful at their marketing strategies. There's ways that you could then market also, you know, maybe small towns out beyond just Reykjavik or, you know, even thinking about, um, Mark, in your article, some of these strategies that kind of Amsterdam employed to get people outside of kind of that main core city, whether it's through public transit or different, you know, things like that, um, facilitating, I don't know, more, or, um, more curated, experiences of Iceland in a way that isn't damaging to the country, I guess. I think part of it is that. I think part of it's preparation, but at a certain point, a destination, like, I understand why they're also saying, okay, but we're going to limit the number of people. So it's a combination of, like, limiting visitors and also having those visitors be more mindful. But how much, you know, when we think about certain destinations, whether it's Bhutan, the Galapagos... I love Bhutan's approach, by the way. We can talk about that later. which, Which essentially makes it too expensive for mass tourism <laughs> and the money is used by all accounts quite constructively somewhere like Bhutan or the Galapagos you know is the answer just jack up the prices so that you you know rich people or bucket list people can go and the prices are starting to spike in Iceland i mean originally oh, really? you know that was during that financial crisis that everyone was getting pretty good deals on trips to Iceland but it's since because of tourism recovered pretty well and those prices are not what they used to be. Well, I mean, isn't that the natural, you know, and I know some of these places have mixed economies, but isn't that the natural progression, right? Like if a thing is very in demand, then it becomes more scarce and the price goes up. And I'm not sure how you avoid that to some extent. But I'd be curious the first time, there are lots of studies about uh, dynamic pricing and how different cultures respond to dynamic pricing, which is when you get what they call personalized prices. When you go into Amazon and the price changes on a book in your basket. No destination has yet priced its uh, museums according to demand. Hotels do do dynamic pricing, but no destination has yet said, if you come and see the Uffizi in July, it'll be $50. Yeah. 
Do you go to the Uffizi in February? 15. Do you want to come in July? You'll pay a premium. Now, I'm not a great fan of just using capitalism as an unfettered way to control, but I do think when destinations are facing things like that, maybe there should be dynamic pricing on other things, or maybe there should be locals pricing. If you live there, the Uffizi's free. If you're a visitor, it's 50 bucks. Just ways to use costs to manage manage the inventory. The I mean, bank. I think that's how you get... It's, it's one of the ways that you get a better distribution across time, right? You're either going to prioritize it in your finances if you really want to go during the high season. And by the way, when you do, the high season will be thinned out a bit because it's less accessible. Or you're going to pick a time when it's more affordable. I actually think that's an incredibly smart way to approach this. But I do wonder, among the listeners, I'd love to hear how do you feel about the idea of paying more for peak season? Would you feel that was unfair? Because a lot of the research into dynamic pricing shows that American people and British people are particularly resistant to that concept. So we tend to react for lots of reasons against it, as does Germany. But other cultures. But are what does that mean? We react against it. We think of it's. I, I could. <laughs> I won't we don't talk go. It. You can read by my book, Bargain Fever: How to Shop in a Discounted World, Paying Your Portfolio. It explains that in chapter <laughs> seven, I think. Um, it is basically that certain cultures perceive variations in pricing based on your ability to pay as inherently unfair, and certain cultures see it as totally fair. If you're richer, you pay more. If you want it more, you pay more. And Americans, British people, and Germans index as the most unfair prone. But I don't cultures. think that we're saying it's sort of like saying airline prices fluctuate or hotel prices fluctuate, but, right? But, but, but imagine thing. I'm just I'm asking I'm curious because I think to us we can see the sense, but we work in the business, so we are thinking partly from that perspective. And I'm curious to the listeners, if you found that museums cost way more in peak season, would you be okay with that? I think, yeah, I think that's an interesting question. It seems like destinations have more gone to the extreme first, right? We're just going to tell you that you can't come instead of asking, would you come, right? Instead of saying two and a half million people can come, only one million can come. Yeah, okay, except I would say the way you get the answer to the question is by doing it. So if you want to see what the impact of a tax is going to be, put the tax in place. Don't ask people whether they want to pay the tax. No, I'm saying people aren't asking. They're doing it. Yeah, but they I, should be. Yeah. It's the only way to get a real answer. Just do it and see what happens. Because if because th these are basically places that are saying we want fewer people to come during peak times. And so if the response of Americans and Germans and Brits is okay, if you raise the price or tax me on it, I won't go when that's happening, mission accomplished, right? That was the point. Yeah. And if and I they're not saying to anybody if you're rich you can come. They're saying Here's what the price is during that peak season because that thing is in demand and we and can't manage the demand. We all use travel as travel is the business that embraced dynamic pricing first, hotels, airplanes. It is a business ripe for that. But I'm just curious, the first, no destination to my knowledge has yet really started trialing it in all sorts of ways. And I wonder what will happen if mm. and when it does. And if restaurants, you know, like how far down the chain does that actually go? I'm going to say it's going to be like Sweden or something. That will do dynamic pricing yeah. across the board. <laughs> and they'll do it so politely and beautifully and it'll be very well designed. Yeah. Well, and there are other ways of getting at access too. Like you could charge, you know, entrance fees. You could charge, in the case of certain uh, restaurants and certain other services, you could charge an upfront, you know, fee to actually be able to get access to the place. That's not a, a terribly uncommon thing. Well, would the goal of that then be to get people then to come at, you know, during off season? Um, in which case, you know, I think that that is, I think there's a lot of people that do look into deals to go off season too, but I think to some degree that's a push and pull on both sides of, you know, the traveler themselves and whatever the destination is, because you have a lot of destinations where in peak season, a lot of the restaurants are closed at that time, or a lot of the museum, you know, there's a lot less hours for available for different things. And yeah, there's, you know, the, some of the, what is that is weather determinant, but, uh, you would then have to, I guess, have that, the destination plan for, I don't know, or, or incentivize people to come during those off-seasons in other ways, too. 
Yeah, you do. You need to provide the counter incentives. The point is, I think it's about the carrot and the stick. And if it's all stick, when it's something as fun as travel, it takes a lot of the fun away. I mean, travel is supposed to be a pleasure. And if there is a little sense of like, mm, I'll punish you, it doesn't sit well with the fact that travel is, you know, the number one thing we spend our disposable income on discretionary in, in, in discretionary terms it's it's supposed to be that relaxing interesting cool thing okay so let's talk about that the experience of being in a place where one of these one of the things we talked about before we came on air is have have any of us actually experienced this a place that's going through this um have you have stood we? around and have t- we tyler have you been anywhere and stood around and thought i can't see anyone who isn't a tourist like me you know i Maybe I'm a deal hunter or something, but I do make a point to try to end up going to places off season. And so I've been quite lucky. Fine, fine. You're like, no, I'm never, I'm never. Cut sorry. him out, Brett. Exactly, fine. Uh, I mean, I've been like, and it probably many Americans, I've been to like, you know, Rockefeller Square at Christmas time or something like that and experienced it in, in, in a local sense. Um, but in terms of international travel, um, I think, you know, I... And I think that's it's come with an, its own unique set of experiences, too, because, you know, when I'm talking about places being closed like that, I'm talking from experience. Like I've gotten to do some really neat things, but I'm also, you know, in Venice when it's very cold and rainy versus when it's, you know, nice and warm outside or something like that. But, you know, the benefit is that St. Mark's has very, you know, far fewer tourists than it would otherwise. I will say I have stood in both Santorini, again, you can listen to me and Brad discuss Santorini in depth on another podcast. <laughs> I've stood in Santorini and literally thought... I am effectively on a circuit that everyone else is walking. And if I slow down, it's a bit like being on a running track because people behind will get annoyed because they're going around. And I have been in Amsterdam and thought no one within within sight is either – it isn't either a tourist or someone here to sell something for the tourists like postcards or a coffee. And that did feel a little bit – a sats. It felt like I was in a cheap movie version of Amsterdam or Santorini, and it was very disappointing. Yeah, I've had mixed experiences in some of these places because I've certainly been in the parts of Barcelona. When I was there, parts of the city were certainly overrun and felt inaccessible, felt like what you're describing, which is just everybody here is either a visitor or servicing visitors, you know, kind of business. And it didn't feel like that was in a particularly authentic way. Same thing with Venice. It's like, Anywhere I go in Italy, I have a little bit of a, you know, sort of inside track because typically my wife or her family or their friends will know somebody or know the city in a certain way. But I certainly went to the parts of Venice when we were there that felt completely overrun and just clogged. Like you can't walk. You can't go anywhere. I think that's an interesting point that you make in terms of part of that is also just density and in terms of, you know, where that tourist or traveler core is. You know, you think of a city like Barcelona as a giant city, but I mean, for you think about the kind of place that when you're a traveler, you really end up spending your most time is in that, you know, the old town and kind of the neighborhoods just immediately surrounding that area. Whereas you look at a city like Madrid, which is, you know, um, in, at least in my experience, there was a lot larger span of area that was walkable. Completely. And it kind of disperses that a little bit more. So you don't have those concentrations. Now, some places maybe like, you know, Santorini or Venice can't do that because you have limited area. But in cities like, you know. See, I think it's interesting. You're making a great point when we were talking about over tourism, what defines it. I think all of the destinations are compact. Cinque it's Terre. density. Yeah. That yeah, that we're oh, about. I got to talk about this Cinque Terre. It's Reykjavik, which is a small city. It is Venice, which is a tiny city. Mm-hmm. It is Barcelona, which what people are seeing is the tiny center. Yeah. Dubrovnik is talking about, I'm trying to find the number. The old town. The number Eight. of people yeah. it wants to limit to the old town. Only 1,157 people live in the old town, down from 5,000 in 1991. So even then, 5,000 isn't that many people. What people are going to see is a tiny destination. So places like New York, it's very hard to feel over-touristed because we're a giant city. Even with density of tourism, there are so many sites you need to see. London doesn't suffer with that. But Amsterdam, which is more compact and the attractions are right in the middle, then you do. So it's almost this density. It's numbers of tourists Per, per square, yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I would, you, you mentioned the Cinque Terre, and this is where, when you get to these very small places, and the Cinque Terre are five very, very small yeah. towns right on the coast of northern Italy in Liguria, 
And this is a place where the towns can almost get obliterated. And that's the case with a couple of the Cinque Terre. It just feels like the only one that I will go to, and my wife has family that uh, stay in a place close by to that, and I'm not even going to say the name because I don't <laughs> want anybody going there. But but they they sort of have a oh, you know a summer house, you know that they go to there, and it will take little day trips over to the Cinque Terre because they are very beautiful. But the only one we'll go to is uh, Vernazza because Vernazza has managed to not get completely obliterated by the tourist trade. Still has a lot of local people that come, but if you go further down to like Manarola and a couple of the others, it really does feel like a post-collegiate American sort of cohort has just come in and completely taken over the town. Isn't that because Vernazza is so hard to get to compared to the others? Like the train station is a much longer hike. I think there's some reason. There, yes, if there not, are. because a lot of people arrive by boat or they, they walk from the train or they walk the path. But that What I wanted, to, sorry, I wanted to say about density, because Doug Lansky, who's a tourism consultant, I loved his, he gave some numbers and I think this sums it up. He said... Disney World, which is the world's most popular theme park attraction, he estimates that the density of people, so in other words, visitors plus staffers, who in that case are locals, is 6.6 visitors per local, which would be a an, an Disney World employee. In Venice, that number is 12.4 visitors per local. And in Amsterdam, it's 7.8. Mm. So however dense Disney World feels, mm. Venice is almost exactly twice as dense. Yeah. And when you think about that, I think that sums up the feeling we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. That, uh, where there were so because Disney, I love Disney World, but Disney World feels busy. It's half as busy as Venice. What is the? I would be curious to hear what the total area of Disney World is compared to the total area of Venice. It's probably not. It's probably probably, not probably bigger. At least <laughs> the parts of Venice that you're going to go to, yeah, and negotiate. I mean, I do think there are redeeming qualities to a place like Venice, and and this is also true of Barcelona, where if you do get out of, you know, the St. Mark's area, Venice is intricate in a way that discourages too much. Like you have to be a little bit adventurous to go to some parts of Venice, right? Even the, the sort of center of Venice. Because you can get lost, and even Google Maps can't help you get unlost, you know, having tried that. Um, <laughs> and so I think Venice, if you have even a modicum of kind of local intel to work with, you can still have, it means you're going to sacrifice spending time in some of those places that you want to go to. Like St. Mark's Square is amazing, and you actually want to see it. But again, choose your time. Mark, you've advocated going during the Aqua Alta. Yeah, and it's of like, course. I mean, I love going during Aqua Alta. And I would say that it's a bit, it's almost like we have to make a pledge. It's, it's a bit like taking an eco pledge to recycle. If you've been somewhere before, let the first timers have their moment in St. Mark's. And remember, on your second or third visits, it's not your turn to enjoy the prime spaces. It's it's that respectful sense of no after you first, so that everyone... So it's almost like we should pledge to ourselves, I'm returning to a place. Yeah, I can run and take a quick picture of St. Mark's just to be like, oh, I got a bad picture last time. But otherwise, I need to go to Dorsodura. I need to go to Zatere. I want to walk along there. I want to go to some of the outer islands. And if I do that, I'm letting someone else have their turn. Yeah. No, I think that's well, a great way of putting it. I also think that that philosophy, it takes a lot of stress off. I think there's a lot of times when you go to a place for the first time, you have this mental checklist of places you want to hit. And you try to cram it all in. And I, I wrote a piece about why you should re think about returning to, you know, a destination because it does kind of open up your schedule. You don't feel compelled to you. You don't need to see St. Mark's Square. You don't need to see. I love that. Piece or and, else. and I think there is if we're lucky enough, I, mean, I recognize there are big disparities here where some people we're lucky because we travel professionally. So we are coming at this in a certain perspective. But if you're someone who thinks you might have a chance to go back it does take the pressure off. It's a lovely sense. I spent my childhood going constantly to the same places over and over again, usually staying in the same hotel room if my mother could arrange it. <laughs> so I understand the pleasures of diving deeper, not wide. And it, you, the, Venice can be like that, where you think the second or fourth time you go, no, I'm going to stay on the Lido and I'm not going to leave the Lido. I'm just going to walk around here and get to know this bit. And that's lovely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you can do the island hopping and things mm -hmm. like that. Well, if you're not yep. leaving the Lido, you won't do that. <laughs> um, 
Mark, talk a little bit about Amsterdam and what Amsterdam's approach has been to so dealing with this. I have to say, there's a, there's a, I will give a total credit to, I was listening to a BBC radio show called Costing the Earth, which looked into this topic of how tourism is clashing with conservation. And it's very well worth a download. It's a podcast if anyone is interested. But one of the cities that Costing the Earth looked at was Amsterdam, which has adopted a very different, very Dutch approach to dealing with too many people. There's no Venetian, we'll, we'll charge you and go away, we hate you, and if we're mean <laughs> to you, someone else will come. Oh, or that would all be in Italian, obviously, but just, just as grouchy. Uh, it is much more a sense of, we know you're going to come, but why don't we nudge you out of the places that you expect to be in? Why don't we use geolocating on your phones when you pull up something on your phone it will roll an ad for somewhere less central. Why don't we try and excite you about parts you've not heard of rather than punish you from spending too much time in the parts you have heard of? And I think that is so clever. It requires a city with a with an infrastructure, a tech infrastructure like Amsterdam, and also a very evolved Dutch pragmatic approach. But I think it's a template that people could really follow. I like the bit about how you go and see the wait times for the Van Gogh Museum, and then I'm totally dissuaded from going because I'm seeing, oh, I go on the website, it's two and a half hours. I'll go somewhere else. They're not and saying, then there are other places that they suggest. They're, they're not saying, right. we don't want you to go to the Van Gogh Museum. They're saying, eh, the lines are really long right now. I, I, why don't you try something else? Do you want to spend your whole... And they use the iAmsterdam card. This, again, requires organization. The data they got from how tourists behaved in the city suggested that it was always canal boat in the morning. There was a particular almost itinerary that tourists had unofficially developed for themselves, which created bottlenecks. So they wanted to try and get people to upend that routine because they could see that if some people would go on the canal boats in the afternoon, it'd be a win-win. It sounds like they either took a page or had the same thought as Disney, because Disney did the same thing. When I used to go as a kid, you had no idea what the wait times were going to be. You just go, you went to the ride of your choice and you got in line and the lines for Space Mountain were always really, really long and you just did it. Now you get Gotta this get those app. Fast pests. Yeah, you get the <laughs> you get the app, you get the whole thing. And when we took our kid there, you know, we knew that the Pirates of the Caribbean was, I don't know, an hour and a half long. And it also makes you be a little bit more creative with your own time because you sort of watch those to the rides that you want to go to and you look for it. It does incentivize exactly what they're looking for, which is that we waited until the wait time went down below 30 minutes and then we ran from some other part of the park and we got there. And we I mean, didn't we've wait all in done line that. Of, I think yeah. this is I think this is anyone who's been who's old enough to go to Disney World before it was super data driven i think that will resonate i loved her to udo who's the she's the head of tourism for amsterdam and just a brilliant woman i give her total props for this she said that when they trialed the video feed showing real time so you could pull up on your phone and say i think i might go over to the van gogh museum let me see how long the line looks literally there's just a camera they trialed it between april and july this year and if it showed the wait was around three hours. The post-trial research showed that 50% of tourists checking the feed would self-select to try again later. So it essentially helped people. Weeds out 50% of the people. What it said to in. people, hey, if, if, if it's going to wait, you're going to wait three hours, why don't you do something else? And people were, that's not a punitive thing. That's really helpful. It also seems like this whole tech, you know, the introducing technology and kind of the geolocating that you were talking about there, there's a lot of opportunities for technology to allow people to customize their trips in different ways. I mean, we don't, there's obviously, when you go to a destination, there's certain, um, like we were saying before, kind of checkboxes, like major sites everyone wants to see, but there is certain, you know, things that propel or, you know, kind of um, focus everyone's individual attention when they go on a trip somewhere. For instance, in my case, you know, I'm a huge fan of beer and I will very much look for, you know, if I'm going to go then and try to find somewhere like, you know, say best one of you know, the top breweries in Brussels or something like that. If you can have, you know, ads popping up for like, well, here's like a tour of, you know, these top five or these five diff distinct Brussels breweries or something like that. You have these options to kind of take people out of those main sites that everyone sees. I love that you pointed, and, pointed that out because what I am some trialed in Dutch this year, but will be rolling out in English next year is an AI chatbot that 
on Facebook, you will give it access to your profile. So in other words, it learns a little bit. It says, oh, hey, Tyler loves beer. And if you message that chatbot for suggestions, it will, it will recommend out of the way places that match to your specific interests. So when you see there's a three-hour line at the Van Gogh Museum, you message it and it says, Tyler, there's this crazy little craft brewery outskirts of town. Your iAmsterdam card gets you there for free. Why don't you spend the afternoon there instead? And that, to me, is the perfect Can solution. we call you an Uber? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but that would be the part. I don't think Uber's allowed in Amsterdam, actually. I, I think they don't. Oh I think they're one of those cities. But I'm sure there I'm is sure a I'm sure there's another way to get what there. I was, what I was going to say, there was when Catherine and I worked on this over-tourism story, we did cut out something uh, because we, <laughs> we were nice and tight. Um, and I thought it was actually interesting to talk about the way that Barcelona has done a similar thing. Do you remember this? Because we, we, we debated whether keep, we'd keep this in. Go ahead. Catherine deals with a lot more stories than I do. so. Or maybe she just slashes and burns, <laughs> burns indiscriminately. Like, <laughs> Too many paragraphs. <laughs> and again, it's I always prefer a story after her edit than before. But the Barcelona was kickstarted by the Olympics in 1992 as a major destination. And the number of visitors spending two nights in the city from 1990 to 2013 quadrupled from 2 million <laughs> to 7.5 million. Just think about that. In just over 20 years, a city absorbed four times as much, not just cruise ships, which yeah, it also right. has, but overnighters. And what ba Barcelona has a lot of cell phone companies in it for, for obscure reasons. It has high cell technology savant. So it used totally non-privacy invading data, which included where, what nationality is your chip from as you walk around town, to see where tourists congregated and reoriented things like the subway exits around the Sagrada Familia so that the flow was smoother and tried to do traffic management by pulling cell phone data for locals and tourists and especially focusing on how the tourists behave to try and make it a better experience for both the tourists and the locals. Hmm. I'm curious if you guys have seen a city kind of get to the other side of this, refine its equilibrium. And I'm thinking in particular of Florence, where, you know, 20 years ago, I feel like the Florentines had largely ceded downtown Florence to tourists because it was just too dense and too crazy. But I feel like that's changed. I feel like they've come back. They've sort of reclaimed it in a number of ways. And I feel like Florence is now a place that you, even if you don't like that kind of intensity of crowd, it's now a worthwhile place to go again, where for a while it was sort of like, eh, let me stay away. I think I'll go to Siena instead, or maybe go to the outskirts. And I think the Florentines had the same attitude. Are there other examples that you guys can think of where a city has kind of come back from that place that felt very uncomfortable and found a nice happy medium? What, what did happen to come to my mind is not necessarily a place that's rebounded, but a place that um, has kind of been considered, at least by one of my sources, like a gold standard for this small city tourism. And that was Bordeaux, France. I think it's interesting. Mark and I both interviewed, I think, uh, Elizabeth Becker, who wrote this book, Overbooked, The uh, Exploding Business of Travel and Tourism. Fascinating, fantastic book that talks about all different, you know, whether it's ecotourism, adventure tourism, kind of all these different things, cities that have been successes, cities that have really failed at it. But her gold standard that she talked to me about was Bordeaux, France, kind of how the city, when they were trying to plan for an influx of people really brought in a kind of all the local voices and figured out ways in which to, you know, make sure the infrastructure was set up to route people to local restaurants and hotels and wineries and all these different things, what through public transportation and, you know, advertising and all that kind of thing. So that everyone's voice was really heard in such a way that it didn't suffer some of the um, over tourism problems that we've been talking about in these other destinations. If you've not read Overbooked, it's a great book, and Elizabeth was fascinating. I found her super fascinating. Um, I think Key West is not quite through this, but is moving through it. I've been going to Key West for 20 years, and I've watched it go from being a sort of counterculture, funky, kind of dropout-ish hub in all the best ways, to walking to Duval Street and thinking, everyone is on a cruise ship, no one is going to be here for dinner, this is why there's so many people, to it calming down, and what Key West did was it moved the cruise ships so that fewer were on Mallory Square, obscuring the sunset, which everyone wants, so that the cruise ships had to bus people in a little bit more. It was less easy to 
you know, disgorge and stroll down the street and then be done. It upgraded its hotels. Its hotels are way more expensive than they used to be. So if you want to stay in Key West now, those little gorgeous little cheap inns I used to stay in, they're almost all twice the price they were. It improved its air links so people would fly in. It would feel like a weekend break destination rather than just a cruise destination. For a while, there was a direct from New York to Key West. Now, most of them are are connecting in Atlanta or Fort Lauderdale. All of those things, I think what I think Key West is reclaiming itself. Is it the same as a destination that it was before its over-tourism? No. But does it feel slightly less overwhelmed? Yeah, very much. I, I would say, I'd be curious, any listeners who've been to Key West recently, do you agree with me or am I being too optimistic? Yeah. Last question that I wanted to ask you guys is a self-referential one, which is what do you think the role is and how do you guys think about this that we play as travel media, so to speak, right? I mean, I think I feel like there are dual pressures here. One is we are certainly always looking for places that are off the beaten path. But we also feel an obligation to cover these places that people want to go to mm-hmm. and that, that are in demand. How do you guys think about that equation and our role in this ecosystem? I mean, I think you see it in our coverage, right? We acknowledge that you want to go to Paris, but we're telling you the best time to go to the Eiffel Tower is actually this time. And here's how you can avoid the crowds or pushing you outside of that comfort zone and going to other areas in the city that you maybe haven't considered. Like, I think it's an acknowledgement on our part and saying, we know you're going to go there, but also here's why you should be educated and here's what else you should do. Kind of what Tyler was talking about earlier is sort of knowing before you go is I think where we come in and we do a good job of that. And I also would say no one should feel guilty for dreaming of going to Venice and wanting to spend a day in St. Mark's as their bucket list moment. And if we can, if we are encouraging you to travel, great. You should travel. Travel is great. It's about being respectful. And if there are a few too many people, I hope we can help you for your sake, not enjoy it less because it feels so over-touristed. But I don't think we should feel guilty for sending, keeping sending people to Dubrovnik and Venice. They're over-touristed, as I said earlier, because they're amazing. Nowhere is over-touristed because it's not appealing. Nowhere is over-touristed because it's so cheap. But also a lot of things that people are complaining about in terms of areas being over-tourists is what what the tourists are like when they get there, right? So I think that's, Mark, sorry to interrupt you, but that's also where we come in, right? It's saying, okay, you're going to go to St. Mark's, you're going to go to Santorini, but here's how you are an ambassador, right? I think those are all great points. I think, you know, bringing to light not only um, obviously the the things you have to do, you know, the life bucket list items you have to see when you go to one of these destinations, but also letting people know about the um, less beaten path type things. That way you can, you don't spend your whole day in St. Mark's. You can go see St. Mark's, then you can go on to something that is maybe a little less traveled and, you're not kind of overrunning these places. And I mean, another thing I kind of mentioned earlier too, and I think not to harp on this authenticity angle too much, but, you know, I think if we continue to bring to light, you know, these opportunities or different ways in which you can go to a destination and really kind of immerse yourself in the culture instead of kind of um, sticking to just kind of the prime tourist destinations and experiences, you know, I, I was just in Sicily and I stayed at like one of these agriturismos, right? And you're staying in the Sicilian hills and it's just this farm where all the food and drink they serve is, is made on the premises. You're really kind of, I mean, can't be much more immersed in kind of the local agriculture and all that kind of stuff there, you know? And these are the kind of opportunities, you know, you can we can bring to light and people can go seek out that take you out of just the traditional. See, I think you're bringing up a thing. And what I it, it was what I was saying earlier about if it's your second visit, it's almost as if the way we can help solve over tourism rather without the carrot and stick is to say for every one very well known thing we do in a destination, we have to do something unexpected. It's almost like we have to manage our own time and make a deal where if we go to St. Mark's, we have to spend the afternoon somewhere kind of crazy. If you go to Dubrovnik for the morning, you have to say, I'm going to spend the afternoon actually in the little fishing village down the coast that no one's heard of. To sort of self-manage and rather than focus just on the greatest hits, it's a, I will combine, I will take one thing that's guaranteed and then I'll be brave on one other. And if we all did a little bit of that, we would help solve this naturally. Yeah, and I think rather than focus on the greatest hits, it's also 
like feeling less guilty about it because I think people are starting to feel like you're talking Amen. about feel guilty about going to these places that they've never been to like by all means you should go to if you've never been to St. Mark's the Coliseum please go it's yeah. amazing and beautiful I, no I, I but I just would say I think think of yourself in that moment not as a consumer but as a preservationist as a conservative right in the sense that when you talk about places like St. Mark's and Machu Picchu and even the Cinque Terre, right? You're talking about the human heritage, right? Like these are, in some senses, works of art that we have inherited as humans on the planet. And I think we all wanting to see them is a celebration of that heritage that we have. Sagrada Familia, a fantastic example of that, right? Like you should never not want to go Sagrada Familia, no matter how crowded it is. But, but by the same token, you have an obligation as someone who is bearing witness to that, to help to make that experience less bad for everybody else, because they also want to have that. And also making sure that your behavior while you're there, whether it's what you do with the wrapper that is in the thing that you're eating or the can of soda or whatever it is, your cigarette butt, is cognizant of that sense it's of It's mindfulness while you travel. It's yeah. about remembering that all of us are borrowing these experiences from history and want to pass it down. Yeah, completely. All right. Well, that's a great place to stop. Thanks to all of you guys for coming and talking. Thanks for taking the time, Tyler, and, and dialing in. And thanks to all of you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes and SoundCloud. Visit us at cntraveler.com. And also want to call out the latest episode of Women Who Travel, Meredith and Lale's new podcast, launched on Monday, December 11th. You should go listen to that. If you haven't already, shame on you. There is a penalty. I warned you. You're not allowed to listen to this if you don't listen to the other one. Yeah, you you have to go subscribe (laughs) to that. And if you didn't, you're in trouble. Um, So go subscribe to that now. They've got five more episodes coming in season one. Um, and I, podcasts are not a scarce commodity, so I guess we can't put a tax on people for, for getting in there. They can't tell can you, you be, that they're going, going, can gone. Can you be over-podcasted? Yeah, I don't know, but, but, but get in there because other people are listening to it and they're getting ahead of you. They know more <laughs> than you. Um, we are also on Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube, CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and, well, sort of Snapchat. I keep saying it, but it's, it's like, whatever. Um... And do tweet at us. Send us feedback. Let us know about your own experiences with overcrowded places. Let us know some of the solutions that you've seen or some of the things that have worked for you. And review us on iTunes. We do appreciate the feedback. Tyler, how can people get in touch with you should they so desire? Oh, well, people can check me out on Twitter and on Instagram at TJMoss11. Mark? Um, people can check me out on Twitter at Mark J. Elwood. And I have to say thank you to Vicky from Wantage in England, uh, the Harry Potter and Sherlock and sci-fi fanatic who did prove me wrong, having said that you could never get upgraded if you had a special meal. She did just get upgraded on Virgin Atlantic. And I got a lovely tweet from her saying, I've been patiently waiting to prove me wrong. And she did. Well so done. I defer to you, Vicky. Yay, Vicky. <laughs> thank you. Well, d- uh, Catherine? All right. I'm on Twitter at KJ LaGrave, L-A-G-R-A-V-E. And I'm at Bradrick. Have a great weekend, everyone.